You're listening to the Loose Filter Podcast, episode 118, How We Think About Music. This episode does what it says on the box. We have a conversation uh, about how we think about music. But more specifically, we try to unpack uh, this idea that the ways that you think about music affect the way that you hear it. In other words, how you conceptualize music, how you understand uh, its parts and, and how it works directly affects what you hear in a literal way. So your concepts affect your percepts. And so we try to really tease out that idea and make it meaningful, even to the most casual listener, the lay listener, as we sometimes uh, refer to uh, uh, musical consumers from the uh, music professional musician side. But we also, as part of that conversation, uh, talk a little bit about how musicians think about and talk about music too. So I think no matter uh, where you come to our little podcast in your musical knowledge and experience, you will find something of value in this episode. You certainly will laugh a lot because uh, Dave and Anthony and I in this conversation never allow ourselves to take it too seriously. So I hope you enjoy it and uh, uh, more coming your way. We got like a bunch of episodes in the, in the hopper. Anthony, how many do we have? He's here with me while I record the intro. He's normally not here. How many? We have three more behind this one. So, so yeah, your inconsistently but lovingly produced podcast is back and in full production. Uh, and so I hope you enjoy this episode, How We Think About Music. Welcome to the Loose Filter Podcast. I am your host, Stuart Sims. Excited to be here with you for this episode. I am joined by co-hosts... Anthony Campolo. And Dave Gant. And we have what we hope will be a fun episode for you today. Less about specific music or musical sound and more about the ideas we have about music, the ways that we think about music. And we had kind of, you know, we have a list of, of topics that we have that we keep going and there were for the podcast and there were a few of them that we found kind of linked together because they were all about ways that we think about music. And so I hope it's not too meta for everybody, but it's stuff that we find kind of fascinating to think about. And there are tools and ways of thinking about music that people employ all the time without necessarily being aware they're doing it. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think that it's for a lot of people, because music is so abstract, it's hard for people to wrap their heads around it and figure out a way to communicate about it and sort of share ideas and talk about it or even pinpoint what it is about a piece of music that they do enjoy. Because for most people, it's just a very visceral, emotional experience when they hear music. They take the reaction they get from it, whereas people like us, we want to intellectualize it and sort of be able to understand it so then we can get our hands around it and do something with it. Right. And when you can't do that step of conceptualization, it's very difficult to talk about because music's not actually a thing. Right. It's a phenomenon. It's it's a sonic. Yes. Something happens. Yeah. It'd be more accurate to call it a verb than a noun. And just like any verb, it's hard to grab it and talk about it and think about it. You know, you have to have some way to sort of grasp it. So we make this imaginary thing that we also call music. 
that is not actually the thing music itself. It's a model. Mm-hmm. It's a model or a, con- a conceptual model, a conceptualization of a phenomenon. Okay, I hope everybody followed us on that one because if you... <laughs> how did idea put it if you can swallow the powdered water then this is for you right mm-hmm. so if you can handle that bit of conceptual uh lofty talk there <laughs> then i didn't know like the, like the what was i trying to say there i'm not sure if you can handle that bit of conceptualization then i think you'll really dig this episode because we're gonna unpack some of the ways that we do that that we we conceptualize uh, the phenomenon of music so that we can talk about it and that will include things like Listening beyond your tastes, active listening versus passive listening, and also using metaphors to describe music, which is something both experts and non-experts do a lot, I think. So where do you guys want to start? How do we dive into this? I think active versus passive is a good place to start. We listen to music in different ways, in different situations, different times. I think it can kind of be put into two different categories. There's active listening when you're sitting down you're really listening to the piece and that's all you're doing whether you have headphones on or if you're in a concert hall if you're at a concert and then more passive listening which is how a lot of people consume music most of the time when it's on the background or if they're driving i think that it's important to be able to distinguish between the two and to sort of hone your active listening skills to be able to use them to their fullest extent so like the difference between wallpaper and a painting yeah and how you're supposed to look at it. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. And I think, unfortunately, the vast majority of most people's listening and listening habits are passive. They put, and I, I'm sure that's true for a lot of us at this table. Oh, right? absolutely. Because <laughs> there's just only so many hours in the day, you know. Yeah. I want to listen right. to so much music, but I have to do things also. It's, it's the worst. <laughs> right. And, well, and music is one of those things that you can combine with other activities easily. And that's kind of what's great yeah. about it, too, is that it can be a passive experience. You don't always have to be totally wrapped up in it. There's a there's a place for both. We're not trying to demean one at the expense of the other. Oh, right. Yeah. I certainly don't mean to imply any value judgment. I say unfortunate because not many people do do a lot of active listening or any really yeah i don't say that to uh say that passive listening is bad at all and and that's one of the things that i think makes music so ubiquitous for all of us that we we have you know i mean you see people all over the place with headphones plugged in listening Mm -hmm. to to audio of some kind that's why the ipod was such a big deal a lot of everyone wanted one they're like oh this is the best thing ever and i could get all my music in it maybe not at first but it didn't take long it didn't take long right not me i still can't do it well, now you can just be right connected to the cloud, and it's kind of all there if you have a subscription service Always and, in the cloud. and data. Yeah, so you when your clouds. So, and that encourages passive listening actually, because you can always have this you know vast array of music to choose from and to accompany any activity or be the soundtrack for anything you want it to be. Passive listening is probably not something we have to talk about a lot or unpack because it's what you know every it should sound familiar yeah, to everybody straightforward things. Everybody, and, and there may be a lot of people listening who are thinking there's another kind what, what do you there's another way to listen to music and yeah and it's a kind of listening that we do i think maybe not often enough and that's active listening anybody want to describe active listening what's it like dave for you what is active listening like it's what i'm doing i mean <laughs> it's it's when i'm listening to music and that's all that I'm doing, that's all of my focus is put upon what I'm listening to at the time. I mean, that's a, why are you guys looking around all weird. The dog squeaky hear that? toy. <laughs> oh, I did not. No, I was not actively listening to the dog squeaky toy. Yeah, it's it's when I'm listening in 
that is my primary activity. It's not that I have this on while I'm doing something else. For me, it's also that I'm not thinking about anything else, that I'm actually just attuning to the music. That can be the hardest part in my experience because it can often be difficult to like quiet your mind, to calm it down enough to simply be receiving and engaging with music in that way and not letting just thoughts like intrude on it, right? Like, yeah, ooh, my foot, my foot is itchy, or I have that thing I didn't do, or, oh, my phone buzzed, or all the things that can, right, mindfulness and really attuning to the present moment. There are a lot of beneficial things to a mindfulness meditation practice, right? Even therapists will prescribe that, in, you know, or recommend that. Yeah, I, I think this could be a good patients, sort of, but, a good stepping stone to that. I mean, a lot of people, when they talk about meditation, they're like, how do I just sit down and do nothing for 10 minutes? They don't, I don't really get it. And I can understand why people have that opinion, but it's really about focusing your mind and being in the moment and going with the flow of time. And since music happens in time, it helps you accomplish that. And also, it can be a great way to practice being active listening in conversations with people, right? Because mm -hmm. how, mm -hmm. how many times in conversation do you catch yourself? Do you do this? Or do you notice someone else doing it? They're not really listening to you. They're thinking about the next thing they're going to say. Oh. And they're just waiting for you to stop talking so that they can say the thing that they want to say. And it's a bad habit. And when I, I became really aware of how often I did it, I... I've really, I don't do it much anymore, but I've, I had to practice it. I had to think about it. Like when I was in a conversation with someone and I would find my mind wandering and I'd be thinking, oh, I know what they're going to say, so I'm going to stop listening to the second and half it's very of it. easy yeah. to sort of but, continue with the yeahs and the uh-huhs uh -huh, and the, uh -huh, we'll listen yeah. to the rhythm of the conversation. Right. Totally, it's you amazing guys. how easy it is. And eventually they'll stop with the sentences and you can go, that reminds me or, you know, whatever. Anyway, we're off on a tangent here, but it's all kind of the same thing. Active listening in human communication, active listening with music. For me, the challenges are real similar. It's like, how do you just pay attention to that? Okay, so you practice it, right? You just have to kind of do it. You just have to kind of decide this is what I'm going to do, and you'll figure it out, and you'll get better at it. Yeah, I think it helps to create a sort of environment that is conducive to that. Like for some people, that would be going to see music, like in a concert hall where you just have to basically sit and watch the stage or for me i really like just laying down my bed having headphones on with the music off really getting into the experience wait, the headphones on with the music on the yeah. lights off yes yeah you said music off i was like wait that headphones no on sense. music off <laughs> other can, way around i can really focus that way <laughs> no distracting music to keep me from listening to my music listen to just john cage's 433 on repeat on repeat Okay, more important than that, though, why? What, are the, why, why? what do you gain from active listening? Well, you get to enjoy music for, for all it's worth. I mean, there's a lot that you're going to miss anytime that you're just leaving music on. It can help you process everything that's going on because I've found that for a lot of people when they listen to music, there's a certain thing that their ear catches on to, which is usually the voice. You know, the mm -hmm. human voice is just a very easy, natural thing for us to want to gravitate and listen to, but... 
most music has multiple layers going on. There'll be the guitar track and the drum track and then all the different layers going on. And active line can help you put all those layers into context and how they relate to each other. So a richer listening experience, yeah. right? It's like I often think that when I do talk to people about like how they listen to music and what they actually hear, because that's a weird thing that I had to learn as a musician is at a certain point you have to understand you're not hearing the same thing that a non-musician might be hearing mm-hmm. when you're sitting next to each other listening to the same music because you've practiced listening so much you have concepts and names for a lot of what you're hearing so you can hold it more easily in your head yeah right because you have like buckets and like you have ways of organizing that information somebody may literally be kind of deaf to what you're hearing or describing or trying to talk about if you're listening to the same song they may have just been listening to the melody and you may say something like "Ooh, i love the way the drummer and the bass player interact in on the you know and they're thinking i don't even know mm-hmm. there's a bass line you know <laughs> right and i don't mean that to say that somebody wasn't paying attention or can't understand a song it's just a, a matter of what are you paying attention to how closely and how much experience do you have with it so how much are you taking well, this it is yeah. a f- this is a phenomenon that Eric has always pointed out that when we we play in church together, he plays drums, I play bass. And on the days when I'm not there, usually there'll be people who will come up to him and be like, oh, the music sounded a little a little different today. Like something seemed just like something kind of off. And he'd be like, oh, yeah, our bass player is not here. And they would just be like, the, there's a bass player? <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, you know, I had I had a time when I was a music student and I worked in a church and had, a, a of all things, a wind ensemble that played in these Methodist worship services which is kind of a peculiar thing, but I was a, you know, that was my thing. I was a band kid and a music ed major. We would play, I think, once a month. And it was the people in the church loved it because it was this kind of rich musical experience they didn't normally get. And one of the, the people in the church came up to me one week and just said, I love when you have the orchestra play. The strings sound so amazing. <laughs> I just didn't, I, you know, I just said thank you, and I really appreciate I took the compliment in, in the way that he meant it, that he meant that music moves me, thank you for making it, mm-hmm. which is a wonderful compliment as a musician. That's what you're doing. That's, yeah, that's what, what we're doing. It's the best yeah. thing you can hear. But I just thought it was kind of hysterical that he's sitting, he's looking. It's not like he couldn't see who was up there playing at a bunch of kids playing brass, woodwind, and percussion instruments. And his brain says those strings are so yeah, somehow. Beautiful. Well, it's an orchestra. Strings, yeah, it's yeah an orchestra, somehow so, you know. Yeah. And so yeah, it's it's funny how different people's experience with the same source material can be when it comes to music. Mm-hmm. Kind of, I mean, if you're watching a movie, if you're both just basically paying attention, you're going to get the same narrative, yeah. right? But if we're both listening to a movement of a Brahms symphony. If I can follow the development, but somebody else can't, we're not getting the same story. Right. Vastly different experiences. Yeah. Exactly. And the plot, like, they may, they're they watching it and thinking, this movie makes no sense. There's no plot here. Like most of us feel watching a David Lynch movie. <laughs> it's kind of like I felt with uh, Mulholland Drive the first time I saw it as I watched it versus when I was able to unpack it afterward and it yeah, made sense. Yeah, it's a puzzle box movie. Exactly. Yeah. It's really intriguing to me how uh, music is so commonly like that. And I think there's a point, you know, as we get to the part where we, we talk about how we talk about music, where uh, why we prize people like Alex Ross, writers who, who write about music so clearly and accessibly, we prize them so highly because it's actually really hard to do because it, you're not just taking this abstraction 
and, and trying to articulate it into noun terms so that you can describe it and talk about it. But you're also probably talking about things that a lot of the people reading it haven't noticed before. And they're going to have to go back to the music and listen to it and go, oh, yeah, there is a bass player. I didn't notice that. Wow, he's really good. Once you point it out, they'll get it. They'll hear it every time. Uh, it's like learning what's the effect that phenomenon called when you learn a word and and then you hear it. I haven't read it recently. Spider Mainhoff, maybe. Yeah, yeah that's gotta be it. Uh, it's kind of like that, and I've had that happen with students over and over again in different settings, not just music students, but you know, in general ed classes and things like that. Where when you say listen to this, and then they go okay, and then you say okay, but now think about these two things. I want you to listen for this thing and this other thing, and then you play the music again and you can see people's eyes light up like they've discovered something click wow i didn't even notice that before that's great and uh so that's for me like why i think active listening is so important for everybody to practice and you don't have to be an expert you don't have to know anything you just got to pay attention you just got to be able to listen you just got to be able to listen and get your mind quiet but you know, if you have problems getting your mind quiet, you gotta, you should learn how to do that for lots of reasons. So how does this connect to uh, listening beyond your tastes? What does that mean? Well, this really goes to the foundation of the Loose Filter Project itself, that we are so wrapped up in our own music, whatever music we grew up with or were exposed to, and that we already know and love that for a lot of people it's hard to step outside that and listen to other types of music, some that they might not be familiar with or that they don't even really immediately like. And I think that that's a terrible thing. I always preach that you need to go out of your way to listen to music that you don't like. I think that that's a great thing to do because if there's a form of music that's been around for a while and millions of people have loved it, chances are there's something worthwhile about it. There's I something think there, that, right. Yeah, like, These people don't all collectively have <laughs> the all worst stupid. taste ever. <laughs> right, right, yeah. right. And I, I think if you're if you're an active listener, if you've been engaged in active listening, you're, it's, it's a lot easier to make that jump into something and, and not just a... Uh, you you aren't just thinking of the trappings of it, I guess. Right, and it's cultural context. You're allowed. You it allows you to actually like listen to thing for something for what it is. Yeah, or even the the general sound of it and like the atmosphere of it is usually I found what turns people off because they're not able to sort of listen to the subtleties of yeah. the instrumentation or the voice or be able to hear what makes the music complex or interesting in a way that music they do like is because they're immediately struck by oh this sounds like so and so that I'm already associate with. And and they don't know what parts to listen to. Yeah. I often find that people think when they listen to music, because what are the research is like your tastes are set around age 19 or 20 with most things, but especially with music for the rest of your life. Yeah. Most people don't really stray far 
from wherever their tastes were there. And like you mentioned, Dave, that's a whole part of your identity and social connections and, and so forth. But I find that when people listen to music that's new to them, they think about how they're reacting to it more than the thing itself. Mm -hmm. Like you guys were saying, the active listening helps you get past that part, whether I'm like, Ooh, or, or, you know, whatever. (laughs) This is for people who aren't like me. Right. Right. Your initial taste reaction may or may not be, and kind of listen to the thing itself. But it ties back to like the original framing that we have for this whole episode, that music is an abstraction. I think because it's temporal, it's more difficult for people to understand music that's new in some way to them. It's harder to make, it takes a little bit to make sense of it. Because the immediate response is so visceral and off-putting almost because of its difference. Because it can confuse you. Mm -hmm. If, if, If you're hearing music that's not organized in a way that you're at all familiar with, it makes you feel cognitive dissonance which we know is physically unpleasant. I remember my dad one time, I gave him a recording of the John Adams Chamber Symphony, which I think is one of the most you know important uh, concert works of the second half of the 20th century, certainly. It's kind of, it's, it's a brain scramble because it, when you first listen to it, because of a lot of things about the piece of music, and if you don't know the John Adams Chamber Symphony, it's highly recommended. I'll play a clip of the opening right now so that you can hear what I'm talking about. music i remember discovering it as a a young person and it really just confused me and i thought what is this i don't like a lot of people feel when they look at modern art you know and it's like a splatter painting or something they're like what is my four-year-old did something Mm -hmm. like this why is this in a museum i don't understand and it's like this it's you're not seeing a lot of what's there is the answer and someone perfectly ties back to the david lynch thing too right exactly it's not that it's not there it's that you're not seeing it and and with music that's what i'm saying because of the medium the nature of music itself it can be often hardest to make sense of something that doesn't make sense at first even when the music itself is sensible Right, because you can't stop and say, here, look at what they just did, because it already passed, yeah. and then something else is happening. It. Right, and so I gave my dad this recording of the Chamber Symphony, and he said he listened to it two or three times, all the way through. I said, how'd you like it? He said, I don't like it at all. And I said, why not? And he said, because it makes me feel like I have worms inside my head. And I thought that was hilariously vivid, right, first of all, but... It absolutely made sense to me because I can remember specific times in my life when I've encountered music that really was out of my wheelhouse somehow. And I just was like, blah, 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 turn it off. Yeah, I've definitely yeah. heard people make similar expressions, but saying spiders instead, like um, Penderecki's <laughs> Threnody for the Victims of Hiroshima. That's, sure. That is the ultimate definition of I feel like there's just bugs crawling on my brain and this is what it would sound like. Or the opening of uh, Black Angels, George Crumb, right? Mm-hmm. That was one that made yeah. my, my sister 
make me take the CD out. She was like, never play that again. What did you just do to me? I think it can be hard for people to listen outside of their tastes, but certainly outside of their cultural frame of reference, yeah. generally speaking. So if you grew up in America anytime in the last 60 or 70 or no longer year ever if you grew up in the united states at all songs are your main musical form that you get and you understand and how music is made and there are kinds of songs that you like there are kinds of songs that other people like there are kinds of songs that are culturally important to your background versus other people's but they're all songs Mm -hmm. and so i find it can be particularly challenged to get people to listen to non-song music more than it could be to get somebody who loves bluegrass to give hip-hop a fair listen or vice versa or something like that yeah i think songs have become so ubiquitous most people couldn't even really pinpoint and tell you what it is they're just like a song is a song you you put on music and a song plays yeah (laughs) (laughs) well itunes literally calls all my tracks songs if it wasn't a song what else would it be you know that's i think that's how some people honestly think about it at this point well and i have to correct music majors freshman music majors because they call everything songs i'm like no a song is a specific kind of piece of music like you know it's just a piece of music it's just a you know tunes 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 is tunes is what i learned is my universal other sort of generic but not everything has tunes so you know (laughs) there you have it uh Okay, you still. They're all tunes. I used to banter with one of my colleagues about, you know, he'd say music went wrong when we lost melody, and I'm like, melody's a dead technology, (laughs) (laughs) which neither of which is true. Because one is the loneliest number that you'll ever do. One is the loneliest number that you'll ever know. One is the loneliest number one is the loneliest number one is the loneliest number that you'll ever do One is the loneliest number much, much worse than two One is a number divided by two That's why I found it can be so rewarding when you can help lead someone into an experience of listening outside of their tastes or outside of their frame of reference that way. So for someone, say, an American who grew up with songs and hasn't really listened outside of that mode, getting them to listen to symphonic music that's developmental, that's not strophic or verse-based or, or in any of those structures, really opens up a different kind of experience to them that blows their minds, in my experience. Uh, I see it with music majors, with younger music majors, but also with general ed students when you're doing you know, a topic class on a particular kind of music or something like that, when you can really get them to get past that reaction of, I like it or I don't like it, their experience with music generally just opens up so hugely. Yeah, I think there's so many people who love music and are avid music listeners who have no musical experience themselves because they're intimidated by it and they never really had the right avenue to get into it, but they do sort of have this interest and this craving to know more. And when 
they meet someone who can explain something in a way that makes sense to them and that can create that aha moment they they love it and they love being able to get deeper into the music and be able to have a deeper connection and understanding to it because there is intention behind all the music we listen to but to most people it's mystical in how they're actually experiencing it or processing it and like you said if there's a kind of music that people have made and loved for any significant amount of time there's something good there yeah, there's, there's, there's something some there yeah. there there's something there yeah there's they're they're on to something and that's i always remember that when i encounter a kind of music that i just can't get into that i just can't find the good stuff in it and of course i should say that you know most of any kind of music that you can name classical music rock music electronic music hip hop anything pick a pick a style pick a practice pick a whatever most of the stuff created in those modes is going to be crap. bad. It's yeah. terrible. Yeah, you right. always got to have the caveat that you got to listen to the really good stuff. And, yeah. right. and that's, you know, the, the fatal flaw with country music and why so many people will say the classic, I love all types of music except country. <laughs> Can I yeah. tell you how many times I've heard that in my life? And it's because they've been exposed to this very specific strain of terrible pop country music. Exactly. And that's their well, entire conception I think of the in, genre. in that case, it's a genre that's built on the cultural trappings. What's defined as country right now is really just basically 90s adult contemporary with certain cultural trappings attached to it where it's made for this group of people. And I think it is a kind of Frankenstein yeah. music. It'd be like if every rock band sounded like Coldplay on the radio and you're like, this is what rock music sounds like. <laughs> That's right. really the equivalent. Right. And there, I mean, there are country musicians working in the country style that yeah. are not that. Yeah. But mm -hmm. some of them are actually, I would have to look all this up to have a more detailed conversation, but they're advocating for a different name for their musical yeah. style. The country. I don't remember what it is. Well, it's um, become a uh, sort of a radio um, identifier more than anything else. Rather right. Than a genre. Right. And it's the only kind of genre that still sells on CD actually, uh, because they sell most of their music. And at, Taylor Swift. Can't forget at Walmart. <laughs> um, anyway, that kind of leads into the third thing on our list that we mentioned at the top of the episode, and that's using metaphors to describe music. So we talked about ways of listening to music, active versus passive. We talked about what that can lead you to, deeper listening that lets you listen outside of your taste or your current experience with music. But then there's another part. How do we talk about it? When we do, we said if you can find somebody to lead you and point when we talk to different people actually translating what you're experiencing when you listen to music into words is very difficult for a lot of people i find yeah this can be something that can be highly problematic or highly useful depending on how the metaphors are used what metaphors you use and if they're actually useful or if they're just they kind of sound nice so what kind of metaphors are you talking about well it would be ways of translating anything that allows you to understand what's going on in the sound, right? So any way that helps you understand the organization of the sound, the materials of the sound, or the way that the sound is manipulated or changed. So those three things, the materials, the organization, and the process. Anything you can use to do that. When we describe the materials, like the kinds of sounds that a songwriter, a composer, whoever might use, you might describe them as some technical terms consonant tonal things mm -hmm. like that those may not be those are more descriptors than metaphors so right so those are the technical terms so to translate them into lay concepts it would be things like warm or bright uh, or bright yeah. or dark or 
thorny or ugly or angular or dense Mm -hmm. or anything like that that describes the specific sounds themselves the materials that you're working with okay using a word that's relating to our sense sensory knowledge of something else another sense yeah Yeah. connects it to another sense a visual sense or or a tactile sense those would be the big two right yeah sometimes taste yeah yeah Yeah, but really usually visual and then for me at least uh, also tactile is big uh, is a good way to describe things. So that's that's the first one. And then the, the second one would be like organization or structure. Like what makes this sound make sense? Like texture. Yeah. yeah so, so you would describe a texture as smooth or rough or silky. You would describe form. Pointillistic. Yeah, or you could describe the form. Mm-hmm. So you could say the technical terms for like different song forms might be verses or stanzas or strains. And you could describe those as pillars or layers or being on a merry-go-round that circles around or any other object or structure that you can connect it to that in some way would represent or be an analog of the musical structure, I think are the kind of metaphors that we would be talking about with that. That one's particularly important when you talk about composed music because that happens in developmental forms Mm -hmm. and there's a great deal of variety and complexity with those. With popular and folk musics, they're almost always what we would describe technically as strophic forms. Verses, stanzas, strains a phrase of music that repeats identically and mm-hmm. then maybe has a contrasting part or two. So like a verse with a chorus. And then if you have a third part, a verse with a bridge and then a chorus, those forms are repeated over and over again with variations and so forth, but the same basic structure there through most, I would say popular and folk music that you're going to find certainly in the Western hemisphere. <laughs> is a lot more slippery and I think a lot more difficult and that's the process. So how the material is developed. What do you do with it? Once you have materials and you have like a structure, so I'm going to build a house here. I'm going to build it out of bricks and here's my blueprints and now how am I going to decorate it? How am I going to live in it? What am I going to do with it? I think this one's interesting because this is where you Look, start Look, I just to... used a metaphor right there. <laughs> yeah, this is where you start to see how musicians communicate with each other when they're doing creative work and the types of things they'll say to get things to click in their heads, be like, I want you to play this like this and sort of give different descriptors and metaphors. Right. Right. Or you you can point out like, here's the main motive, right? This little snippet of melody. This is my main idea. 
it needs to feel, grow more frantic as it's chased through the first two minutes of this piece. That would be something a musician would say to, to another musician, right? A mm-hmm. composer might say to a, a performer playing their music. Or when you hear this groove, you want it to dance like this. Like, that's a really big one I know with percussionists. They think of how how will the music make you want to dance? So that's almost like a so visual a kinesthetic, metaphor. Like yeah. a tactile kind of, yeah. yeah. How does this, yeah, how would it make me want to move? Mm-hmm. That's a way to get it in your body and make it feel more concrete. I remember there's a story about when Tom Waits and Keith Richards were in the studio together for Rain Dogs, and they were trying to get this part down. At a certain point, Tom Waits just started like moving his hips a certain way, and Keith Richards was like, "Why didn't you just say that the first time?" And they just like played it perfectly. <laughs> right, and that illustrates even when it's musicians working in a, mm-hmm. in a you know in a in a professional working context, words fall really short. Yeah, you know, even when you have a large vocabulary to describe what it is you want. Right, so I've been up as a conductor in front of professional musicians, like people who are really great at what they do and know a lot, and I have a large vocabulary available to me because they're all specialists, and sometimes I just go, no, it needs to be more, like, you know, (laughs) sometimes you just just don't use words because because they are a representation, they're a a layer or two, a level or two removed Mm -hmm. from the thing, right. Yeah. What's interesting to me about using metaphor to describe any components of music, the ones we talked about or anything else, is that a really good metaphor can open, like I was saying earlier when we were talking about active listening, how people can actually miss things. They can be deaf to things if they they don't perceive them or aren't paying attention to them. How a really good metaphor can open up people's ears. Yeah, because once you have a word for something, you can actually think about it. Or, or, or yeah. an idea. Yeah, yeah. not a word. Yeah, you can actually think about it, and that's the thing. It's funny when people who don't know much about music get frustrated with a musician using jargon. Like, why should you have to learn all that? I just want to play the guitar or whatever. It's because it helps you think. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Their words are tools for thinking with. And and so being able to say, that's a chord, that's a staff, that's a note, that's this, that's that, is tremendously convenient, number one, but it also helps you work with the ideas in a really fluent yeah, way. And waiting right? for you to have muscle memory for all that is going to take a really long time. <laughs> it's easier to just have some words for it so we can deal with those problems. So that your yeah. brain knows what to tell your muscles yeah. to do. Yeah. And then you can start to use those and put them together and get greater knowledge and higher understanding of these things. And it's only once you get all those little pieces and can start to put them together and get your hands around them that you can get to that those higher understandings and start to really see the musical piece as all these things at once instead of just the first thing that you experienced it as. Most definitely. Mm-hmm. So what else on this? Like how else, anything else we want to, we kind of went through our three main points there. I think they all highlight how important it is and how impossible it is to think about music. I mean, it's it's more difficult and complex than I think one would assume. And I think that's the, why a lot of yeah. people sort of just stray away from it. A lot of people, they just want to listen to the music they like and not really have to think about it or have to defend it, or it just creates a situation where people just don't really want to talk about it because they don't have the ability to. Well, because we're not a culture of music makers, Mm -hmm. because we all, everyone alive today was born into, born into, no, of consumers, of music consumers, because everyone alive in the (laughs) world... Everyone alive in the world today was born in a world with recording technology. So playing music was some version of pushing a button. Mm -hmm. And when you have to go to the piano, when you have to pick up a fiddle, when you have to sing to have music in your home, which is 
all of human history until like a hundred years ago. Yeah, now right? is the extremely weird time exactly. that people aren't making music. And so there are certain even basic things about music that you don't understand because you haven't had to sing a tune or play an instrument at all. And having to do those things helps you understand those basic concepts and have names for yeah, them. Yeah, even something like being in tune is something that, yeah. as a freshman music major, I don't think I entirely understood. Make the <laughs> wobblies <laughs> go away. <laughs> right. right. They sound awful. Yeah. And so particularly we live in an era when people are not aware of any of those things. The difference between... I understand it and unbelievably complicated in music is like a tiny degree for a lot of people. Like, like I can understand this kind of music and now I'm totally confused. And there's such, it's a, steep, not a, big there's such a steep learning curve because of all the terms it takes to understand and because of the abstractness of it. It, really, it takes you a little time. And I've found that some of my friends who love music but aren't necessarily musicians, they really enjoy talking to me and getting to sort of pick my brain about music and they'll ask me, you know, general music questions and I'll sort of explain it to them and they'll be like, oh, that's really interesting. And they enjoy sort of getting that peak and getting to see a little more about it. And everyone should already be able to, like, figure this stuff out just because it should be something we all do. And <laughs> unfortunately, it's it- not. a shame that it's such exotic knowledge yeah exactly Be- because it does impact your experience of the thing so directly mm-hmm. like you were just describing we did a show uh, with the opera company here in town a couple weekends ago where we had uh, music and uh, poets and so we were doing part of the dress rehearsal in the theater a couple of the poets were sitting in the in the audience like in the second row waiting for their part of the rehearsal to happen and we got to a break and I walked over to introduce myself and one of the poets who was fabulously talented she's a fantastic poet and she gave great performance of her poems i have a lot of respect for her work but she said wow it's really fascinating to see musicians work i don't get to see that often i didn't understand any of what you were talking about i you know i kind of laughed and yeah i hear that a lot but i i thought about it i was sort of thinking about it a little bit later and i thought that wasn't a particularly technical rehearsal it was a it was just kind of a run-through we'd already done a show it was spot checking it was pretty surface what I would consider pretty surface stuff but it just illustrates to me the gap between a music that that there is such a thing as a musician and a non-musician yeah right that's kind of the modern era because playing an instrument being able to sing was not an exotic skill a hundred years ago that was just something no. everyone did every yeah every somebody <laughs> in your family had to because otherwise you didn't have any well music I, in I your think house. I think everybody sang everybody because like what else are you gonna fill the hours with <laughs> like seriously you know, like, I, I watched the Civil War recently and I was talking about like their Sherman's March you know of horrifying destruction across the south and like these guys were singing the entire time because Seriously, they were marching across half a continent. 
What are you better gonna, be able to sing. What are you going to do? Sit there and think about how awful it is to march across half a continent in a hundred burning everything. Years. Yeah, yeah. And, and this destruction and all. you. Yeah, you sing to. So you have the things that music brings to the experience of being alive. Uh, so it's really we have kind of in that sense lost a lot. We've gained a lot in our musical culture and our experiences with the technology that we've invented in the last hundred years. Yeah, be able to just have access to any musical work and just be Ever. able to actually yeah. Yeah, to recreate it in its exactness yeah, in an infinite collab- amount of times. Collaborate and share over great distances to find an audience anywhere. I mean, it's, you know, and not to mention the instruments themselves. The computer as a musical instrument is amazing yeah. <laughs> and all the things that it can do. But But we have lost... Some and it's. I think that that line between I get this and can get into it, and you've totally you make me feel like I have worms in my head. Yeah, it's, it's a very thin space, it's a very thin line, and uh, I do lament that. I guess is that I think the, it is helps. That an old, too old fashioned a word to use, but I think lament? It helps. no, lament is, is always relevant. Starting with music that people already appreciate and love, and be able to talk about that and sort of get them to intellectualize that a little bit, I think is the, the best stepping stone. People always want to know more about the music they like, I find. And that if you're able to sort of get them on that next level with the stuff they're already into, then they can sort of be like, oh, that's really interesting. And then you can introduce them to other types of stuff that might be a little more foreign and then be like, oh, listen to this and how it relates to this. And then they can start to draw that connection. But yeah, you need to start from a place where they're going to want to be into it. That's one thing that is interesting to me. When you get someone listening outside of their taste, when you get someone doing active listening, you sort of start a, a, a fire or a chain reaction that can just go. Because mm-hmm. once you start doing it, like my world is so much bigger and more rich since I, as a, a young adult, I started listening outside of my tastes. Mm-hmm. And the more I do it, the more rewarding it is, the more it feeds itself the more it happens, you know, it's this great positive feedback. And then you just, and then keep... it gets hard to listen outside your taste because your taste is so big and broad. <laughs> right. Then you're just listening to everything. Yeah. And you start to find that there's so many genres and you just keep falling down these different rabbit holes that go forever. It's like, for me, I fell in love with like underground nineties punk music. And, you know, you find this whole scene of dozens and dozens of bands that no one's heard of. Who doesn't listen <laughs> to the style, <laughs> but there's still so much great stuff there because if you are really into that style and it connects with you, then you can be like, Oh, there's all these like-minded people making this like-minded music. And you can find them because of yeah. the internet, Woo. the internet, because <laughs> the internet, right? You can find them and you can share and you can talk about it. And you, yeah, definitely. Anything else for the good of the order, Dave? I mean, I think uh, we should give more specific examples. I, I was just of, sort of thinking about how, like, um, I know I always go into my wheelhouse of timbre, but that's sort of the area of music where we always use metaphors. Yes. And we can't use, like, we don't have many really terribly technical terms for how we describe actual sound. We tend to always fall into metaphors there. And it took me a really long time to be able to actually find words like bright and dark and actually have and those be useful to me. What do those words mean to, me. to you? Yeah, you know, it took, it took a while. Like what? Like what does bright mean to you as as uh, as table? Well, to describe it, I would have to use other <laughs> metaphors. To you know, I would have to say a sound that is a sound that is bright. Okay, so it would be a sound that is maybe thinner in tone a little bit. A sound that is more nasally. A sound that is a lot more present in the higher part of its frequency spectrum. Yeah, to you be could technical. compare instruments exactly. like this would be brighter than this. 
Right. So like a trumpet is brighter than a French horn. Yeah. Or an E is brighter than an O. Yeah. 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 Because it's more, it's nasally and it's more forward. Mm -hmm. It's in thinner resonating chambers, right? So yeah. E as an O is and more resonant. And E is the really nasally one, right? right? And, and like, so brighter sounds would be s smaller sounds in that sense or narrower sounds, whereas O or bigger sounds, darker sounds would be bigger sounds, yeah. more resonant sounds. Again, that's all secondary, yeah. you know, talking about the sound itself is, I mean, I guess we, we have a better vocabulary to be technical because we've translated sound into information. And so mm -hmm. we can describe how it is information. So you could say that the higher part of its frequency spectrum is louder. Yeah. And then you get into the point where you need but, to know physics to be able to understand any of it. <laughs> this is true. Yeah. This is true. Because like the way that the thing that I just said, you have to understand the physics of sound to get, mm -hmm. you, you know, it, just in a basic sense, yeah. but you have to get it. To understand why what that means and why that would describe the sound right so yeah something up brighter sounds they are easier to hear they're stick more focused higher, yeah. they stick out yeah they stick out they're more distinct they have clearer edges to them they don't blend with other sounds nearly as well i would compare them to primary colors or fluorescent colors even yeah as opposed to earth tones <laughs> Which are warm which are, and dark. Are, well, there are, there are also cool <laughs> hues of earth tones, too, but those are hazier and Aqueous. fuzzier. And, <laughs> and they have softer edges, right? Just like darker sounds are bigger and they seem more resonant and they occupy, they're, they're fuzzier around the edges. Is that, is that enough metaphor for timbre for you, Dave? <laughs> Why'd it get great. so hostile <laughs> up in here? <laughs> Jesus. It's a good point that you can't even talk about the quality of a sound without yeah. going to metaphor. Got to throw other stuff at it. Yeah. It's tough to talk about music. It's tough to think about music. <laughs> what always frustrates me about music as a field of study and practice is that we often confuse the, the metaphor for the thing. Map territory. I mean, we issue. do that in life all yeah. the time. Yeah, we do that in life all the time, don't we? But because we have to think about music as a thing and talk about it as if it were a thing, we start to think it's a thing. And so we start to talk about things like the canon and, yeah. and what are acceptable musical styles and practices or what values music ought to have as represented by these pieces of music. A woman named Lydia Gare wrote a really brilliant book called The Imaginary Museum of Musical Works, where she thoroughly deconstructs that idea. But she points out that this idea, the work concept, she calls it in music, the work hyphen concept of music as a thing, a musical work as a thing, yeah. 
dates from about 1800. Yeah, yeah. It's a recent idea. Beethoven. I mean, yeah. it was all Beethoven, Beethoven who got and, us thinking and that. And E.T.A. Hoffman, actually, you know, who, yeah, who wrote, wrote about it and said, right. this is what Beethoven's yeah. doing, so think about it this way. But Beethoven's practice, certainly uh, wanting editorial approval and wanting uh, a critical edition that he approved of all his works. In contrast to Metronome Bob. markings, right? Uh, mm-hmm. This this story always amazes me that the metronome was invented, at, well, the metronome we know is invented by Maitzel in 1817. And Beethoven was friends with Maitzel, and he was Beethoven was like a technophile. Mm-hmm. He would he would be the first with a new iPhone or an iPad today. But he uh, got a hold of the metronome, and it blew his mind because he's like, now I can say this is exactly. I can tell him how fast it's supposed to go. I, yeah. the exact because nobody ever takes it fast enough, so I'm gonna tell him exactly how I want quantified. it to go. Yeah, it's never been quantified. Now I can do it. He went back and added tempo markings to all his works written before that date, and for every subsequent published version, insisted that they all have metronome markings because it's his like you're saying it's that's the work and it's the way i want it to be be. this speed right and you perform it's your job to realize my vision well that and that's an important thing when you don't have recordings you know that's the only way he had an idea yeah right right and when you're relying on other people i always say as a musician that's the most frustrating thing is how often we have to rely on other people to realize our creative Mm -hmm. goals or impulses or or ideas and that can drive, like paint, you know, Picasso, you know, if he was temperamental having to work alone, my gosh. <laughs> if he had to hand off a painting to an orchestra of 80 whatevers to, to render it. You know? This guy deals in red and this guy deals in open. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. Here's our red section. <laughs> You're going to need to talk to the darker hues if you want them to pop a little more. I mean, like it would it would drive you batty and it does drive, you know, a lot of people bad. And that probably explains why all the greats, Mozart and Beethoven, they all played piano because then at least for their piano works, they would have full control. They could play the whole thing. Playing, yeah, and they can be like, this is how I make music. <laughs> right, right. And it's that's why for a long time it was the best technology for composing. Yeah. Because it was the technology. Well, you, can play more, you, you can play more than one you note can at play one more, time. You can play See all how this, this works, you know. You can play ten notes at one time. Right, right. Or even more with a pedal. <laughs> or your face. Right, or your, or your face. <laughs> so in conclusion. So in conclusion. I wish you luck. <laughs> so those are the things we talked about. Uh, we hope you enjoyed it. And we hope you enjoyed <laughs> there it. There are some things and some yeah. stuff. All right. It was free. What do you expect? <laughs> All right. I got one. <laughs> okay. So I think that this is a really good starting point for a conversation, really, because this all is stuff that we've been chewing over for so long, and it's so complex that Really, this is just sort of like the beginning of the journey. If you've never thought about any of this stuff, and if this has never really occurred to you with music, that don't get frustrated if it seems difficult at first. That it's it'll get easier the more you sort of do it, and the more you try to get yourself in that headspace. I say to students all the time, it seems difficult because it is. Yeah, <laughs> it's it's a lot. I mean, music as a human activity, we've done it as long as we've been humans. I mean, it's, it's something we've always done, and so of course that practice. It has a lot of dimensions and facets and complexities to it. But yeah, like you said, Anthony, I think you just, just it's okay to not know a lot when you start. Everyone's a beginner when mm-hmm. they start. That's what a, being a beginner is. Just do it. Just keep doing it. So if you can practice some active listening, give it a shot. If it's not something that you do often, uh, I highly recommend it. Take a little bit of time and do it in small chunks. Sit down and only listen to music. It may help if you like use uh, you know iTunes or something. Turn on a visualizer. Have something to keep your eyes occupied. But don't read. That doesn't or count. A sleeping mask. Uh, or a sleeping mask if you want to go the other way. No visual input. <laughs> and 
preferably floating in a tank of, of <laughs> it's a three saline solution tank. at 98 <laughs> degrees with only headphones <laughs> piping in the sound a pure that's the that's the way that real people well that's real, how i listen every day like real i have, music I have three lovers, hours blocked out you know real music lovers listen in their sensory deprivation tank that's exactly what this whole episode in fact has been leading to and if you go to our website we have a, a merchant link <laughs> The loose filter. The loose filter Loosefloater.com. But anyway, try some active listening and notice the ways that you can try to think about the sound. Challenge yourself to try to uh, describe, you know, maybe what you're hearing. For me, and what I tell people is listen to, try and listen to the different instruments. It's very easy for your ear to always latch onto one thing and just see if you can, like jump for one. See, I like think, what is the drums doing? Listen to what the drums are doing. And then what's the guitar doing? Listen to what the guitar is doing. That's a good way, I think, to sort of break out of your normal listening habits. Yeah, swim and, around. Yeah, you know, there's a lot to listen to. Listen, to use another metaphor, yeah. or you could try the simple rule of don't listen to whatever you normally listen to. Yeah. So if every time you listen to a song, you're always listening to the singer. The next time you listen to your favorite song ignore the singer <laughs> try to listen to everything else that's going on and it may kind of blow your mind because i mean i still will catch myself falling into passive listening habits or shallow listening habits and when i finally pay attention it's like oh i never noticed that before mm-hmm. and i listened to that song like 48 times already yeah all the somebody worked music. really hard to do that part <laughs> right somebody and now- was trying really hard and it you deserve. They deserve your attention. They deserve to be heard. Yeah, I think all the best music has that to it. There's always going to be those sort of hidden layers to it that affect you the first time you hear it, but takes you a little while to really be able to pick up on all of them and all the subtleties of what's going on in each part. Definitely. And it's just, if you get going on it, it's going to be its own uh, perpetual motion machine for you. Because mm-hmm. it, it, once you hear something, it's going to spark, and you're going to be like, ooh, that was... And you'll realize what we mean by it's a, a more rich listening experience when you perceive more of what's going on like dave way back at the beginning of the conversation you described not just hearing the individual parts but how does a sound against b and how does b sound against c and how does a sound against c and how do a b and c sound all together so you start to really be able to get this really much more uh rich kind of tapestry of experience i think yeah all right